Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the interview series, New Books in African American Studies, where writers and scholars of African American life, arts, culture, and sciences discuss their new books. I'm your host, Vershawn Young, and today I had the wonderful opportunity to speak with Harvey Young about his provocative new book, Embodying Black Experience, Stillness, Critical Memory, and the Black Body published by the University of Michigan Press in 2010. Harvey Young's book chronicles a set of black experiences or what he calls phenomenal blackness that developed not only from the experience of racialized abuse, but also from a variety of performances of resistance that black people employed either to respond to or ward off such racialized experiences. Harvey Young is an associate professor of theater, performance studies, and radio, television, and film at Northwestern University. And all of these disciplines are deployed to investigate these instances of phenomenal blackness in his book. Though Harvey Young is quick to say that the book is not about photography, theater, athletics, or museums, it is indeed about all of them, but it is about something more the black body, or black life. I think that Harvey's book is a wonderful addition to African-American scholarship that seeks to intervene into discussions of identity politics and how those politics affect real life experience. Let's listen in to the interview. Hello, Harvey. How are you doing today? I'm doing well on yourself. Excellent. Today, we're talking to Harvey Young about his new book, Embodying Black Experience, Stillness, Critical Memory, and the Black Body. I've read this book in its entirety, and I can recommend it highly. I think that the book does a really excellent job of parsing out how the black experience is multifarious and um, and various, but at the same time, can still be read as a collective identity in a phenomenological way. So, Harvey, can you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yes, uh, definitely. I'm an, I'm an associate professor now. I, I received tenure last year at Northwestern University. And I'm located in the theater department, but I also have appointments in performance studies, African-American studies, and radio, television, film, which is basically visual culture, visual cultural studies now. And I'm from Buffalo, and the reason why I say Buffalo is useful as a sort of framing biography for me is that I'm part of, I guess you can think of it as the last wave of sort of, of the great migration of Southern um, sort of black folk who uh, were in the South who then moved uh, North, going to the industrial centers for jobs. So both my grandparents, uh, you know, sort of moved from South Carolina and then from Virginia, respectively. Uh, both sets uh, to find employment, to find possibilities in Buffalo. So my grandfather, my mother's side, uh, you know, sort of moved from Virginia to 
uh, work in the steel mills, Bethlehem Steel in Lackawanna, uh, New York. So if you've ever seen uh, Lackawanna Blues, either the film or the play, it's like it's it's that community, that culture, um, um, and not necessarily the party culture, but that neighborhood uh, that was what my grandfather experienced and my mother experienced growing up. And then I sort of saw like the last phases of that, because if you've seen the film Lackawanna Blues, it's uh, uh, kind of depressing, and Lackawanna is a economically impoverished place now. Uh, but, you know, there was this sort of wonderful uh, moment in the past when you had this sort of vibrant black middle class that had arrived from the South and found these great possibilities and opportunities. And then on my father's side, my grandfather moved from South Carolina uh, to get a job in the Ford factory uh, in Buffalo, sort of Ford Motor Company. And then my father and then his siblings all worked uh, for GM and the GM auto plants. Uh, and, you know, I, I think of myself and I think there's a lot of people like me, you know, who are sort of the descendants of, uh, or the grandchildren of sort of people who moved from the South and then are, are the children of people who worked in these factories. Uh, and we're this kind of the last wave of, I think of the sort of black middle class childhood that you have tied to blue collar work in the working class, uh, you know, coming from the Great Migration, and that now that you have these steel mills collapsing, now that you have um, these uh, auto plants closing down, as you have unions being busted, you know, it's actually going to impact uh, the possibility of sort of black families and other families um, um, that have the same stories uh, from actually having a middle-class existence. So that's where I'm from, and, and it was that sort of culture of the South and Southern recipes and Southern stories and visiting the South and going to Virginia, South Carolina, that was part of my uh, upbringing, um, mm -hmm. you know, and also being aware of my, myself as being tied to the Great Migration. I went to college at Yale, uh, so I went away at the age of 17, packed up, left Buffalo, New York to uh, go to New Haven, and that was a, a, an experience in and of itself in that, you know, I went from being a person who, you know, was used to going to, you know, the parties that were sponsored by uh, the UAW, you know, at Darien Lake, which is an amusement park, kind of like a Great Flags amusement park, uh, to uh, hanging out with the uh, sons of senators um, and congressmen. And at Yale, I studied film and political science, and I thought I, was to, I thought I would go to law school. I, I assumed that, you know, if I went to Yale or went to college, that I would become a doctor or a lawyer. And about four years, four years into it, so toward the end of my senior year, uh, after I took my LSAT, I decided that, you know, the law wasn't for me. You know, my passion was really looking at the way the culture was received and preserved in the arts. Um, and that's when I knew my senior year that I wanted to go to graduate school and actually pursue and write about, um, you know, like sort of black culture expressed through, you know, the arts, film, photography, theater, and other, and, and other media. Uh, so I applied to the University of Buffalo, went back to Buffalo, uh, for a master's degree where I did this sort of hybrid master's that was in American studies and in media study. And, and that was great. I worked with Bruce Jackson and at, at, at Buffalo, uh, Bruce and I sort of, I assisted him, uh, worked on this Walker Evans exhibit where it was Walker Evans FSA photographs, you know, these photographs taken in the 1930s, uh, that, um, Walker Evans is a sort of famous photographer, uh, you know, sort of created as a way of documenting relief efforts during the Great Depression. And I was just taken and amazed by uh, the artistry of Evans, but also by the representations of, of black men and women in these, like, uh, relief lines, uh, these food lines, 
uh, taken in Vicksburg, Mississippi, and other places like that. And those images sort of stayed with me. And I knew um, at that moment that I wanted to do something with Walker Evans photographs. Mm. Uh, so I was at Buffalo, you know, for a year in the master's program. And midway through the master's program, I uh, knew that, you know, the academic lifestyle was what I wanted, you know, and I knew that uh, a lifelong career working with uh, African-American history, working with uh, images of black people, uh, was what would sustain me for a career. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I applied to Cornell for my PhD. And I went to Cornell, um, and there I studied theater specifically. You know, But my theater PhD was shaped by film studies, by women's studies, mm-hmm. uh, and also by literary theory. You know, So that's, those are my three areas, and I think that anyone who reads my book will see the presence of an attention to visual culture, also an awareness of you know, the complicated and varying identities that is, you know, that, that one has, um, you know, as a gendered and raced body. Uh, and then also um, a facility with uh, literary theory and phenomenology and, and other uh, lenses uh, in terms of reading these uh, cultural moments and experiences. Uh, so I went to Cornell, and Cornell was also interesting for me, not only because it was near Buffalo, uh, you know, but Cornell is a place where it's a very, very liberal city, uh, within a fairly conservative rural neighborhood environment, you know, so I, I've never been at Austin, Texas, but people always talk about Austin, Texas as like the, the, um, uh, you know, the, the liberal bastion in an otherwise conservative place. And Ithaca was very much like that. So it, it was a place where, uh, if you were around campus, you felt as though you had these wonderful debates and uh, you could talk about anything and everyone was accepted. But if you move just outside the outskirts of campus, you know, then you found yourself in a different neighborhood, in a different society, in a different environment. So it was a place where uh, you were both sort of welcomed and embraced at the same time. You were always being vigilant, uh, always uh, concerned about, uh, you know, how you'd be treated if, you know, if someone came to campus or drove past campus or if you went to, um, you know, or you left the campus, you know, grounds, uh, uh, um, boundaries, I guess you can say. Are you, uh, so are you, sorry. Yes. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Continue. Uh, yeah, so I think it was a place for me that I felt um, not only did my research interests get nurtured by the University of Cornell, you know, I was also hyper aware of the operations of race, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, living in Ithaca, you know. So it was one of those things where I found the, uh, I guess you could say the raw data, of the, uh, the, the, those core experiences that inspired my book uh, to come through uh, living in Ithaca for four years. Uh, you, you want to ask a question? Yeah, exactly. Um, you were you were raising uh, points that are brought up in the uh, opening chapter and in your book. Um, I suppose when you when you talk about some of your racialized experiences in Ithaca, can you speak to yeah. speak to those? Yeah, yeah totally. Uh, and but so the book begins uh, with uh, me. Uh, talking about France Fanon, and there's a number of books, uh, you know, in the area of black uh, cultural studies that reference uh, France Fanon's black skin, white masks, uh, in which he has this moment, right, where he's walking around uh, and he's in France, and um, a child, you know, who's walking with his mother, being carried by his mother, looks at Fanon and says, uh, you know, look, a Negro, I'm frightened, you know, I'm frightened, um, and Fanon talks about what, is it, what it means to be seen that way. You know, for me, uh, I was, as a graduate student, I was in Ithaca, and, and I had actually, you know, read Franz Fanon's uh, Black and White Masks, and literally the same week I had read it, you know, I was walking around 
you know, um, you know, a street um, in Ithaca, New York, and a car of, of, of young or teenage white boys drove by with windows down, it's like summertime, and they screamed nigger at me, right? Uh, and the thing about that was not only did it sort of register uh, because that experience uh, was reflected in what Fanon had written, the same thing had happened the previous year, <laughs> you know? Um, and then even before that, you know, I had uh, an encounter with, um, you know, the police where, you know, they just assume that, um, you know, essentially a black person behind a wheel uh, of a car, uh, you know, must be up to something, you know. So there's a case where it was racial profiling, typical case, uh, where I was driving along, uh, the police pulled me aside, you know, said I would, you know, you know, sort of, uh, you know, said all would be okay, um, and then said, actually, on second thought, we're going to take you in. And I couldn't, I couldn't understand why they were taking me in. And I said, I don't understand what you're doing. Uh, you know, what is the charge? Why are you trying to take me in? And you know, they said, the, the police officer at the time said, uh, you're resisting arrest. Um, you know, so what he did was he whipped out his handcuffs, put his handcuffs on me, put me in the back of the car, drove me to the precinct for processing, you know, fingerprinting, mugshots, and all that type of stuff. And what happens, uh, and you hear this time and time again, you know, that one of the more common charges um, against black people, black motorists, is resisting arrest, you know, so that, that there really isn't a charge precipitate being arrested, you know, but what happens is when you get sort of pulled over, you know, you are vulnerable to police surveillance. You, you have to sort of, you know, just be silent as you're being frisked, you're, you know, as your car is being searched. Um, and if you even ask a question, you say, what's going on here? You know, they can call that uh, a resistance of arrest. You know, so for me, it was those experiences with the police, but also with those boys driving by in the car calling me nigger, um, you know, happening multiple times. You know, it seems like every year it happened. It's almost like every summer, here, here it goes again. Um, you know, I knew that my experience was unique. It was happening too much to myself. It was happening to my cousins, you know, in Buffalo. It was happening to my friends elsewhere. You turn on the news, it was happening. Um, uh, you know, and I felt as though it was important for someone, um, you know, to write about how these experiences of race, of blackness, of profiling, repeat, you know, and that's really what my book um, strives to do. Um, you know, so that's what motivated me to write the book was to say that, you know, there's a way as academics that we um, sometimes create abstracted notions of blackness. And what I mean by that is that sometimes we spend so much time thinking about, uh, you know, these sort of non-embodied, these non-sort of skin-complected experiences, you know, that we begin to think about race in a way that doesn't really jive um, with the way that people live it day to day. And that's what I want to do with my book. Mm -hmm. Can you uh, tell us about the title? Um, maybe some of the um, critical terms that are mentioned in the title, the notion of what it means to, um, to embody blackness and what do you mean by stillness and critical memory? Yes, totally. Yes. Okay. So I'll I'll do the subtitle first. Uh, the subtitle first, and then I'll work my way to the main title because I think that might help to explain it a bit more. Uh, so for stillness, uh, that was my way of being dissatisfied with uh, the way we romanticize the diaspora as black culture is always on the move, <laughs> always in motion, always going. Uh, and indeed, yes, let's acknowledge that you know uh, you know black culture circulates and and, and travels. Uh, let's acknowledge that, you know, the slave trade required movement. Um, you know, but I think what happens is that, you know, when we begin to think about 
um, and theorize black culture as culture abstracted from bodies, when we begin to think about black music as being abstracted from bodies, when we begin to think about black food as, as being like not tied to bodies uh, and the travels of bodies, that there's a way in which you know, ideas of the diaspora begin to absent black bodies, right? Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. So you can actually romanticize movement of culture and flow uh, without being aware of the impact it has on actual physical bodies. Uh, so for stillness, uh, that was my way of saying that uh, even within this sense of movement, um, you know, there's a lot that kind of remains the same. There's a lot that remains similar. Uh, you know, there's a lot that passes from generation to next generation. So I have a chapter in my book about photography where I talk about the Zewi daguerreotypes. And they're, they're, they're quite famous in that they've been written a lot uh, by scholars. They appear in art shows. And what I say about this, and this is something I say that most people haven't said, or I actually haven't seen it anywhere else, so as far as I know, no one else has said it, uh, that the Zui daguerreotypes existed because the men in those portraits were black captives who were born in Africa, right? Mm. Uh, they were the ones who actually traveled across the Atlantic. You know, they were the ones who stood in auction blocks. They were the ones who stood in holding cells. They were the ones who were then transported from a plantation to uh, the studio to be photographed. Uh, and what I argue is that, you know, if you look at what they had to endure, you know, they had to endure a lot of stillness. So while they traveled a lot, you know, their body was always fixed and rendered motionless even as they traveled. You know, so I use stillness as a way of saying um, and, and thinking through and theorizing blackness and black experience, uh, not in terms of movement and diaspora, but in terms of these, these summer positions that remain the same even as movement occurs, even as time passes. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's the stillness part of it. For critical memory, I was really impacted by the work, and I still am impacted by the work of Houston Baker. Uh, and Houston, uh, as literary theorist, he's just out of Vanderbilt University. Um, and his idea of critical memory uh, is, is, is twofold. Um, you know, but basically, uh, it, it gets condensed into the sense that there is this uh, kind of this core memory uh, that sort of passes, these course of experiences that can pass from generation to generation. Uh, and for him, it's, it's tied to the South, it's tied to uh, the voice of Martin Luther King Jr., it's tied to uh, soup potato pie, it's, it's, it's tied to uh, things that you might associate as being more sort of typically, um, uh, more, more typical aspects of black culture coming out of, of, of the South. You know, but, for, for, but there's also the other part of it, which is to say that in the preservation and the embrace of those memories, there's also some forgetting that occurs too. You know, that uh, in order to sort of revel in sweet tea, for example, or sweet tea pie, you're also forgetting, you know, uh, you know the, the experiences of sexual assault and abuse on plantations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what Houston says is, you know, he wants um, uh, his readers and scholars uh, to not forget, you know, to remember these things and, and, and to realize that one's present status is built upon those past experiences. Uh, and that, you know, by claiming those memories, you know, by not forgetting those memories, by going back to the archive and finding them, uh, you're actually gaining a better sense of, of, of what contemporary black culture had to endure to reach the point it's at. Uh, you know, so for me, the memory part of it is, you know, a lot of the book is, is digging to the archive, finding the experiences in the archive and sharing them with people and saying, you know what, these experiences are not that dissimilar from the experiences we live with today. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe if we recognize them and see how they repeat and they recur across generations, 
uh, that then we can develop some sort of responses to deal with them. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so you know, so that's that. Uh, the black body, which is the last part of my subtitle, and what that talks about is that you know the black body is essentially an idea that people have of blackness, right? You know, so it's not that a person thinks about uh, the black person as the individual. It's not someone saying, oh, that's Harvey, <laughs> you know, right? Uh, instead, it's whatever projections or ideas they have uh, that they sort of map across people regardless of who they actually are because they're skin color, right? You know, so what I mean by that is you can think of, uh, and I write about this in my book, uh, Jesse Jackson uh, mentioned, you know, that nothing sort of brings him more pain, you know, at this age in his life than when he's walking around, the, walking down the street in Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and he hears footsteps walking behind him, uh, and he turns around, he walks faster, right? And he turns around and sort of worried and anxious. He turns around and he's relieved to see that it's a white face, right? Uh, and what that does is that, it, what that example gives me uh, within the book, um, and now is that it says uh, people imagine the black body as this criminal body, as a stereotypical body, as, as, as one that's, um, uh, going to be violent, and uh, among other things, uh, and no matter who the actual body is, those associations get projected across it, right? Uh, so w- what I try to do is I try to say that, you know, these experiences um, that I document in the book are occurring not because the individuals necessarily uh, feature in the book, but because that they are read in, uh, as the black body. They are the screens across which these images and stereotypes are projected you know, upon. You know, so that's what I argue there. Uh, now, for embodying black experience, you know, that's my way of saying all those subtitle elements come together to create an experience of race, you know, that we live with every day. We take it with us. We go onto the street. Uh, it's those experiences that we share with, um, you know, uh, other people, backyard barbecues. Uh, you know, it's those experiences that socialize children. So, for example, um, you know, we, um, at least within the black community, uh, uh, you know, will often sort of encourage children to behave a certain way as a way of uh, trying to decrease the odds of them being uh, surveilled by the police or being assumed to be a shoplifter when they're, when they're at, a, at a store, mm-hmm. um, you know, to dress a certain way, to have a certain comportment. Uh, and all of those things, those experiences, uh, that way of training and um, uh, shaping uh, sort of black bodies of all ages, you know, comes out of those experiences, comes out of the past, and that's what the book is about. Yeah, I like the way in which you, um, when you talk about the Jackson experience, where you you make that nice, succinct statement by saying that black folk also suspect the black body. And then you go into a discussion um, about the the famous or infamous, as the case may be, uh, Chris Rock uh, comedy routine <laughs> between uh, blacks and, and niggas. Um, yep. How is it that uh, uh, people, black people and other people, uh, can experience your book and 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 use it as a way to um, understand the black experience. Oh, that's a great that's a great question. Um, I would say that what I what I do in a book is three things. You know that what will apply to any reader, and and, and this is where the usefulness will come from. I think the first thing is it, it offers a, a a clear way of understanding how bodies become subject to projections of stereotypes and violence, right? You know, so I have a chapter on lynching souvenirs, mm-hmm. uh, and that's all about how black bodies 
uh, you know, that were sort of unfortunately sort of caught up in lynchings, um, then were uh, uh, not only did, uh, abused, but also dismembered and collected as souvenirs. And that's a great example for me of demonstrating how, you know, the people, the person who collected a toe or a finger uh, wasn't interested in actually having a finger or toe of, of, a, of, of Harvey Young or, or George Ward or whoever else. You know, what they wanted was they wanted to own and possess the black body, this idea of the criminal body of a black person, you know, that seemed to um, contain all of their fears and anxieties related to race. Uh, you know, so the book is really about, you know, how individual bodies have to deal with and manage, uh, you know, these projections and how disruptive, um, you know, these projections can be, like to the extent where someone can die because of them, uh, how these disruptive these projections can be in a person's life. So that, that's the first thing. The second thing I do is, you know, I offer a way of addressing how a person who has to deal with those projections begins to navigate um, and prepare, and navigate, you know, you know, through day-to-day life, but also prepare for the arrival of those projections upon them, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so I, it, it, it offers a way of thinking about, um, you know, how a person, well, how blackness is socialized, but also how, you know, a person prepares to live in a world in which they know that they're going to be a target of violence. Um, you know, I wrote something else recently, um, and it's not in the book, but I wrote about uh, Lloyd Richards, who's the director. He directed A Raising the Sun. And in one of the interviews, uh, Lloyd Richards, who's a black director, uh, was asked uh, about his experience of race and, 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 and what, you know, how he, lives, how he gets through the day each day. And what he said was, he said he wakes up in the morning and he looks in the mirror and he sees a black face. And he says, no matter how beautiful I find that face, I know that when I go out to the world, you know, that face is going to antagonize people. You know, and I try to steel myself up each morning, you know, for, uh, you know, the uh, epithets that will be thrown his way, for the uh, barbs that will be, you know, sort of uh, thrown at him as well. Uh, and, and that's really what it's about. It's, it's about that moment um, not necessarily, you know, I guess you call it double consciousness, but of a person sort of looking at oneself, being aware of the fact that they're just who they are. You know, you know, I'm just Harvey, you know, but when I go out into the store, I get in the car and I drive to a certain neighborhood, I can be read in a different manner. You know, and then how do you sort of navigate that? How do you, uh, you know, try to steal yourself up for that experience? So, so that's the second thing I do. And the third thing I do is it's really a project of historical discovery. Uh, I use different media, you know, uh, photography, daguerreotypes, uh, sports coverage, uh, newspaper clippings, uh, to gain access to the experiences of people who lived a long time ago, from as early as 1810 with Sarah Bartman and Hantat Venus, uh, to more recent and currently alive people. And I think that anyone who's interested in learning how to make history come alive, uh, anyone interested in, you know, wanting to connect with a person in the past and make that person not just a name on paper, but a three-dimensional figure who, who has a lived experience that you can relate to, you can find a way to do that within my book. Mm-hmm. As I was reading the book, uh, I felt myself being a part of the A-man corner. I mean, I, I, I agree with many of the arguments um, that you made. I share some of the experiences that, um, you know, you write about in the opening pages. I like the way that you um, dealt up front with some of the biggest objections that your book uh, might encounter. One about the um, interdisciplinarities, um, 
you make a statement that this book is not about photography, theater, athletics, or museums, but yet you draw from all these um, domains. Um, but it's about the um, the similar experiences that repeat um, on the black body. The other thing that you do when talking about the black body is you draw on spillers and say that um, you, you know putting the black body in context is what's um, extremely important for a critic to do. I was wondering if you could respond to what you see as um, the biggest objections um, to your argument or to the subject matter of the book. Good question. Uh, I, I would say that I think that there's a push and a movement away from bodies, right? Uh, and what I mean by that is I think that you know, we're in a moment right now where we want to move beyond bodies. We want to, you know, not contextualize or think about race and blackness uh, or identity as being uh, tied to a physical form. And and there's good reason for that. You know, and, and the good reason for that is that, you know, you know, throughout um, a lot of sort of historical writings, you know, that the body that was always assumed was always a white male heterosexual body, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of people were absented from that. You know, once you go into African American scholarship, you know, for a while a lot of the body that was a lot of the bodies being censured were black male heterosexual bodies, you know, uh, you know, so you know, part of the push away from the body was to say uh, bodies are different. You know, bodies look, you know, like, you know, you know, they have different complexions, they have different gender identities, um, uh, they have different abilities in terms of physical abilities. You know, so, you know, to move away from the bodies begins to um, allow a person to uh, engage in a way that sort of opens up to more people. And what my argument is, is that, you know, my argument to that critique is that, well, what I'm looking at here is the way that these projections flatten all bodies. You know, so I have an example that I offer in my first chapter about racial profiling, and I say that, um, you know, a person who, you know, who appears to be recognizably black, uh, you know, who's driving down a street, uh, you know, that person, whether it's a male or a female, is equally subject, you know, uh, to racial profiling. That person, whether that person is British, you know, a UK citizen, uh, African, Caribbean, or a person from Buffalo, uh, you know, that person is equally subject to racial profiling. Uh, you can look at, um, you know, the assaults of, of a range of people in New York City and other places of African immigrants who are mistaken as being African Americans uh, to see how those things, you know, how those experiences can flatten, those projections can flatten these differences. So, so, so that's the first thing I would say is that, you know, in our desire to sort of move away from the bodies, we're losing our ability to think about the similarities um, you know, that unite us, and also to recognize that those similarities, yes, you know, they flatten, you know, but that's the danger of stereotypes, that's the danger of caricatures, that's the danger of these projections when mapped across bodies. So that's the first thing I would say. Mm -hmm. The second thing I would say in terms of responses to uh, potential uh, arguments uh, would be that, you know, I agree with you that the, the book is interdisciplinary, and what the book does is, you know, it offers uh, sort of five different lenses uh, you know, using different media, sort of boxing, right, museum display, you know, photography, um, sport, you know, so, so sport obviously is boxing, uh, theater, of course, and performance studies, you know, to, to show how the similarity exists. And for me, it's that, that range, you know, it's that variety, you know, that allows the sameness, uh, well, not the sameness, but the, the similarity, you know, to, be appear, to, to become more apparent. Um, and that you need to actually go and look at Tom Molyneux, a boxer in 1810, and also look at Sergeant Bartman, 
you know, the Hatabinas in 1810 to realize that their bodies are being displayed in not dissimilar manners, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and sure, you can say that Bart Bartman was being displayed in freak shows and, and, and Molino was a boxer, uh, and that the form you know, of the freak show and, and the sport of boxing offers a different lens of looking at bodies. But we realize that the same audiences may have been looking at the same people, you know, uh, that's we realize that they have more in common, um, you know, than a person initially suspects, you know, so that's what I push in the book. Uh, you know, so, so, so it's really those two things. It's also worth noting that I was a student in the Horton Spillers, you know, at Cornell, and uh, I don't think she necessarily would agree with everything that I wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I wrote the book thinking of her, you know, I wrote the book sort of imagining her being a reader uh, <laughs> and responding to the critique that she might have, if that mm-hmm. makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, it in does. the same way that like, I, I had the great fortune of having a, a, a number of wonderful advisors at different points in my life from Bruce Jackson, I mentioned already, you know, working with Walker, Walker Evans to Horton Spillers to uh, Rebecca Schneider, who's, who, who, sh- who chairs the performance studies department at Brown, to Tim Murray at Cornell, uh, Alan Trachtenberg at Yale, um, John Swed, who's now at, Corn- now at Columbia, I used to be at Yale. You know, so it's all those voices uh, were in my head and as I was writing, and, and I could imagine myself having these conversations with these faculty uh, members, these professors elsewhere to see, well, you know, how would they respond to this? And it wasn't a case where I felt as though I had to channel their voice. You know, I just had to be able to anticipate their critiques if they had any. Mm-hmm. And I felt the book does that. And it does it nicely. You uh, also delineate um, very well towards the end of chapter one um, what the book is is about by taking us through the um, the um, particular subject matter of the subsequent chapters. I was wondering if you could speak about um, personally how you came to choose each um, subject and that's focused on in each chapter. Oh, yeah, totally. Sure. Um, well, there's, there's two strains to this, you know, part of it is, is the personal gut part of it, which is that when I started to uncover some of these parts of these things, um, of these chapters, I'll see more in a, more in a second about this, you know, it just struck a chord to me and, and something in my gut said, you know what, these things are all really like, and even though they seem to be jumping across different, uh, media, you know, you know, they have this core through line you know, that speaks to me and my job as an author is to relay that through line to the reader, right? You know, so, but it was really kind of this gut thing. And the other part is, um, you know, I knew that I was interested in centering the body. So, you know, I'm centering the black body, um, you know, as it gets repeated, as it, as it appears, both as a sort of a stereotype, but also, you know, as the actual lived individual, the actual person uh, across these chapters. Uh, so for... Uh, the first chapter, I really center myself, to be honest. You know, I center and talk about my experiences in, in Ithaca uh, and uh, that moment where the boys drove by and screamed nigger and then also the police, you know, to realize that, to acknowledge that these things repeat not only across other people, but also within a person's lifetime, right? You know, and, and that's the way of thinking about the similarity. And as I wrote that, I was aware of, my father's experiences with racial profiling in Buffalo, driving to work, you know, every day, you know, driving exactly the speed limit, you know, like mm-hmm. not a mile per hour over or under, you know, because, you know, uh, he could get pulled over, you know, for the slightest transgression, you know, I was aware of my brother-in-law in his stories of, of, of racial profiling as well. Um, you know, and a lot of other people, 
uh, Devon Carbato, who teaches at UCLA in the law school. Mm-hmm. Uh, him, who's, uh, who is a, uh, uh, a British law professor. Uh, right, he's, well, he's, he's from the UK, uh, but he's a law professor, uh, you know, with, with a quite distinctive accent. And, you know, he's a person who was, you know, has, has been pulled over a couple of times, and he writes about it. Uh, and, you know, there was this finding of fact where no one, behind the wheel, no one thought of him as being anything other than, you know, a, you know, a black person from the U.S., right? Uh, you know, so it was that, it was those experiences that I kept repeating, I kept hearing about and experiencing myself that, you know, structured the first chapter. The second chapter on photography, um, I, like I said, I, you know, I'd always been sort of enamored by the Walter Evans photographs, uh, you know, that are part of that. Uh, there was something with the Zuli photographs, those daguerreotypes that just spoke to me. And I had them in my office for, and I still have them in my office right now. I have them like the, the paper version printed uh, and penned in a corkboard. And I spent probably a few years just staring at them, looking at them. And I felt over time I got to know them. I got to know them. Uh, and I wanted to get a sense of their story as they sat there and looked back at me. Uh, and it was that desire to know these figures who uh, who are missing a last name uh, that structured that project. For boxing, uh, when I was at Buffalo, I did a photo study of children learning how to box. And, you know, at the time, you know, I thought it would be the coolest thing, you know, sort of like eight-year-olds, you know, beating each other <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. with uh, boxing gloves. And, you know, so so I did that. And I spent... I don't know, you know, three, six months uh, working with them there every day. I'm not working with them. I was just like in the room taking pictures. But I was there every day uh, and going to their matches and traveling with them. And, you know, I really, you know, developed this, this profound respect for the sport of boxing and then also an awareness of its history in terms of uh, of being the sport that enabled class ascendancy. You know, it, it, it allowed for an opportunity for people to, uh, you know, escape um, – you know, being trapped in a certain economic bracket, mm-hmm. uh, a certain class you know, status, uh, you know, and it was also about discipline and the body and control. Uh, you know, so I found it really interesting. And then when I looked into the history of boxing, uh, the history of boxing, both you know, in the U.S. and also in the U.K., is tied to uh, sort of class difference. You know, where you would have an aristocrat, you know, having his cook or or, or butcher fight for his amusement, right? You know, or you would have uh, men on southern plantations having their slaves fight, and I became interested in that too as well. In terms of what does it mean to have the black body as property, you know, fight uh, one another um, for the amusement of someone else. Um, so that interested me. And I also one of my favorite books is Absalom Absalom by Faulkner. Uh, and there was that scene in that book where you know Thomas Hutton, you know, as a way of you know expressing his uh, dominance, I guess you can say, um, you know, over the black body actually would go in and sort of fight uh, with these men. And then for me, my thinking of it was, well, within this sort of time period, um, of course, these guys, these black men couldn't really fight back, <laughs> right? You know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and, and that's what really made me think about the power dynamics at play and also the racial dynamics at play in boxing. Uh, and then I have a chapter on theater. Uh, and it was, in, in that case, I looked at how a series of playwrights are haunted by these histories of sexual assault mostly uh, on plantations and how they restaged, restaged those memories and experiences uh, and imagination and, and imaginings uh, within their plays. So Susan Laurie Parks uh, uh, during Sergeant um, Bartman's experiences in Venus, it's um, Gillard Landersmith uh, sort of imagining uh, and also kind of recreating a, you know, a, a, an actual person's experience uh, of, of, of 
colorism within the black community, you know, sort of light skin versus black skin, mm-hmm. darker skin. Um, you know, it's also Rod McCauley sort of recreating her great-great-grandmother's rape uh, on the ground of a southern plantation. And for me, it was that sense of, you know, the fact that these memories come back and repeat over and over again. Um, and that theater became a way of giving presence, you know, sort of making these memories uh, come alive, you know, and rendering them as a three-dimensional sort of physical material uh, sort of embodied presence that struck me as fascinating. And the last chapter uh, looks at lynching. Uh, and it, it's split in two parts. Uh, the first part is on lynching souvenirs, uh, the fact that people would often collect uh, the body part as souvenirs, fingers, toes, other, other parts. Um, and I was amazed by that. That was a case where I was working with a student, and we were, we were studying lynching dramas. Uh, and as part of that, I you know, sort of began reading uh, newspaper reports on lynchings. And over and over again, I kept referring to that. I kept finding this one sentence about like how someone would you know, snip off a finger and save it as a souvenir. And I thought, this is crazy. And how come no one knows about this? Uh, someone do that. And then the second part of it is about James Cameron. And James Cameron is, or was, he died recently. Uh, he was widely considered to be the, the only survivor of a lynching. So you say, how can you be the only survivor of a lynching? <laughs> like, how do you know, right? Um, and he's a person who... Uh, was arrested with two of his friends, and a mob went, lynched one friend, you know, went back, lynched the second friend, mm-hmm. went back, grabbed James Cameron, put a rope around his neck, and then dragged him through the streets. And then at the end, they said, and then at the end of the day, they decided not to lynch him. Uh, you know, so therefore, he is a lynching survivor in that way because the mob had demonstrated an ability to lynch, you know, uh, just before they went after him. Uh, and he was so tormented by his experiences and by the memories of that that act of violence, you know, that he created a museum in Milwaukee, the, the America's Black Holocaust Museum, which is now closed. Um, and I write about some of the reasons why it's probably closed uh, in the book. And, you know, I was fascinated by him as a person and his stories and how he became, you know, you know throughout his life, uh, like the embodiment of the history and the memory of lynching in the U.S. To give you a sense of things, when the U.S. Senate apologized for lynchings, uh, they apologized to him. They fooled him down to D.C., you know, you had John Kerry and other senators kind of, you know, taking photos with him, and they apologized to John Cameron. <laughs> like, like, that, mm-hmm. like, he was like that type of figure. Um, you know, so it's that. We can see how, you know, across those chapters, you know, the book is really about a way of engaging with these experiences of individuals, right? You know, so it's engaging with the stories of, of James Cameron, but also George Ward, who was lynched and, 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 and dismembered as souvenirs. Um, it's, it's a story of... Rod McCauley, but also her great-great-grandmother, Sally, along with the Hunted Venus, and people that like her who had the same experiences. It's about um, Muhammad Ali, um, you know, and sort of how he uses stillness as a move toward asserting power and agency and control over his own body, but also about Tom Molino, a person who in 1810 didn't have that same ability. Uh, you know, it's about uh, the Zuli uh, figures as captives, you know, Jack and Renty and others, Alfred Fassina. Uh, but it's also about, you know, some of the more anonymous figures who appear in uh, photographs um, by Walker Evans. You know, and then certainly it's about sort of more general sort of anecdotal uh, uh, um, sort of conversations, you know, that I think people can connect to about sort of living, you know, in the present moment, um, you know, as a racially marked, as a black person, uh, and realizing that you are subject to discrimination um, and violence. And I want to say for the um, listeners that while the um, you focus on these 
subjects in the in these individual chapters that you give um, uh, in-depth and um, insightful readings of other um, African-American cultural and uh, literary uh, episodes in those chapters. For instance, in, in chapter uh, three, when you talk about um, Muhammad Ali and, and boxing, you give a reading of, um, of Ralph Ellison's uh, uh, Battle Royale in in The Invisible Man, and and it's 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 a nice connection uh, that you make, and I think that's one of the uh, highlights of this book. Can you um, perhaps read for us a passage from the book? Oh, sure thing. Uh, so what I have for you is the opening part of that actually that, that same chapter, chapter three, on, on boxing, uh, and, and that chapter is called Between the Ropes, Staging the Black Body in American Boxing. Uh, so I'm going to give you the first couple pages of it, if, that, if that's okay. That's fine. All right, so here we go. Uh, so uh, chapter three. On April Fool's Day, 1967, undisputed heavyweight boxing champion Muhammad Ali received a letter from President Lyndon Baines Johnson. Opening the envelope, Ali was greeted with the following words printed in capital letters across the top of the correspondence. Order for transferred man's report for induction. Ali had been drafted. Four weeks later, on 28 April, 1967, at 8.30 a.m., the heavyweight champion arrived at local board number 28, at, at local board number 61 in Houston, to be inducted into the United States Army. After filling out the necessary paperwork and seeking a written test, Ali was subjected to a series of invasive physical examinations. He remembers, and here I'm quoting, Give me your paper as the next doctor snaps and move into the, into the stall. He's fidgeting and he speaks with a strong southern drawl. Take off your shorts, all the way down. He adjusts his glasses and appraises me like I'm a bull that came into the herd. Up closer, he snorts, leaning down to examine my penis. Of all the doctors I face, he is the most hateful. The doctor jabs his hand in my testicles. He feels around with his thumb until he finds his body he's looking for and tells me to cough. Again, he says. So you don't want to go and fight for your country? His hand is tight in my testicles and I say nothing. A chill creeps over my whole body and I think of the days when castration and lynchings were common in the South. Uh, end quote, and that's the end of Ali. Following the examination, the, the doctor ordered Ali to get dressed, to go to the reception room for lunch, and to stay there until his name was called for induction. The induction ceremony is a rather simple one. A group of drafted men are instructed to stand in a horizontal line. When the name of a drafted man and his service, the branch of the military in which he will serve, are called, he is to take a single step forward. The step inducts him. In this step, the drafted man crosses an invisible threshold and in the passage announces his willingness to fight and therefore die for his country. That's essentially negating his drafted status. When Ali heard his birth name, Cassius Clay called with an induction ceremony, uh, as part of the ceremony, he stood still. When his name was called a second time, Ali again did not move. The lieutenant in charge of the ceremony, now looking even more intently at Ali, then called Mr. Ali. Still no movement. After having called his name, uh, after having called out the champion's name three times, twice by his birth name and once by his assumed Muslim-identified name, the lieutenant ushered Ali to a small room and warned him that failure to take the step would result in criminal prosecution and carried a penalty of up to five years in prison and a $10,000 fine. The induction agent informed Ali, and I quote, I'm authorized to give you an opportunity to reconsider your position. Secret Service regulations require us to give you a second chance, end quote. Presented with a second chance, Ali thanked the lieutenant and respectfully declined, saying, and I quote, thank you, sir, but I don't need it, end quote. To which the lieutenant responded, and I quote again, it is required that you go back into the induction room, stand before the podium, and receive the call again, end quote. 
Realizing the futility situation, Ali returned to the induction room, stood in line once again, heard his name called, remained standing, heard his name called again, now for a fifth time, and still did not move. Finally, the lieutenant, realizing that the champion was not willing to be drafted, ended the ceremony and escorted Ali back to the building, downstairs, and ultimately outside, but not before notifying him that he would soon be contacted by the United States Attorney's, by the United States Attorney's Office. Exiting the induction center, Ali crowded faced a crowd of fans, a swarm of suspect reporters who wanted to know whether the champion had taken a step, and a single elderly white woman who managed to capture the eye of the heavyweight champion as he was ushered to an awaiting taxi cab. Ali recalls, and I quote, You heading for jail. You heading straight for jail. I turn and an old white woman is standing behind me, waving a miniature American flag. You going straight to jail. You ain't no champ no more. You ain't never going to be no champ no more. You get down on your knees and beg forgiveness from God, she shouts in raspy tone. Um... And so I'm, I'm, I'm going to cut ahead to one, to, no, I'm cutting ahead, so one second here. So the old white woman at the induction center reminds us of the fixed positioning of the black body. Revisiting the scene of the induction ceremony, it is clear that the drafted body, in this instance the drafted black body, has no real opportunity to leave. The body that takes a step forward becomes institutionalized within a branch of the armed services, renounces its civilian status, and moves closer to becoming a war casualty. The body that stands still finds itself caught within an endless cycle of hailings and through the cycle is repeatedly reminded of how difficult it is to occupy a space between the federal military and the federal prison. A slight movement, indeed a single step, is a, is a decisive act. The body that takes a step back faces another form of institu- institutionalization. To paraphrase the woman, the body that steps back is heading for jail. Heading straight for jail. It's going to jail. The repetition implies the certainty of the space place in which the body will find itself. It will be in jail. Wow. Uh, and then that's where... Uh, the chapter begins, and it continues for obviously another whatever fifty pages. <laughs> you know, but that's the start of that chapter. <laughs> that is a provocative and and very um, uh, beautiful excerpt, uh, and it actually illustrates um, the um, eloquent writing in the book as well. Why why that passage though? Why that one? Um, I, for me, I, I have to admit, I just it, it, there's something about the Ali chapter that. Uh, I really like, you know, that boxing chapter. There's something about the fact that Ali uses stillness. You know, mm-hmm. he refuses to move. Um, you know, there's some strength in that. So you can often think of stillness as being a powerless position. You know, but he actually finds agency in that, you know, in like, despite having limited, limited options, right? Uh, either stepping forward or stepping back, but he remains still. Uh, you know, so it, 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 it's bad for me. So there's some hope in that stand, mm-hmm. you know, for Ali, that moment gestures back toward uh, ways in the past in which uh, sort of institutions attempted to uh, frame black bodies as captive bodies, right? You know, so gestures toward that, but it also demonstrates a break from that, that past moment, you know, and, and that's what I find so inviting and exciting about that part of it. And, and, and in terms of the structure of the book, that becomes, that, that's the middle of the book. It's chapter three. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, it's the first real glimmer of hope, <laughs> you know, that surfaces in the book. <laughs> uh, and, and that's what I want. It's, it's not about uh, black people always being victims. You know, it's about uh, being aware of the fact that when you're within the system uh, you know, in which you are subject to violence, you, you will be the target of violence and profiling and surveillance, uh, that there is some agency. And for Ali, you know, he's a person who was able to stand still you know, to assert his agency, ultimately to avoid going to jail, because he was aware of the experiences of those who preceded him. Like mm-hmm. he was aware of the experiences of Tom Molino, the, the, the captive boxer in 1810, 
who's aware of the experiences of Jack Johnson, you know, in 1910, uh, who then was sentenced to prison. Uh, he was aware of Joe Lewis, who, uh, you know, became kind of a shell of himself because, you know, he so sold out, you know, uh, Ali called him the black, white hope, uh, Joe Lewis, uh, you know, that uh, Joe Lewis, Joe Lewis became, he was a drug addict, he was impoverished, he was poor, he was a wreck by, by the time he died. And Ali watched all these people, well, at least watched, uh, uh, tapes of uh, Jack Johnson and Joe Lewis and knew the story of, of Tom Moyne and was determined not to become like them. Mm-hmm. So when his time came, when he had to go to use this, so when his time came uh, and he was facing prison, he decided to put it in his own hands. Like he, he decided to stand still, refuse the call, um, and assert his agency. And the one more thing I'll say along those lines about Ali, which is brilliant about him, was that Ali was a heavily champion, <laughs> right? Like, like he had the spotlight, you know, everyone knew, uh, Muhammad Ali and everyone knew Ali had been drafted. Uh, and every day people asked Ali if he was going to be drafted, if he'll be, if he'd allow himself to be inducted. And you know, he consistently said that he didn't want to be drafted, you know, but at the end of the day, he traveled to Houston. He participated in the ceremony. He allowed this doctor to, uh, inspect him and, uh, um, uh, treat him like an animal. You know, he went through the multiple healings of these calls, you know, as a way of demonstrating that he didn't have to do any of that type of stuff, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Ali could have, at the very beginning, he could have, just said, he could have said, I'm not going. You know, I'm not going to go to Houston. I'm not going to stand in front of that doctor. I'm not going to stand in a line. Uh, I'm not going to do it. And if he did that, the same things would have happened. He still would have been sort of charged, right? You know, so what did he gain by traveling to Houston, by subjecting himself to the doctor's inspection, by subjecting himself to Lieutenant's call, you know, three, four times, you know, he demonstrated that only he controlled himself, only he controlled his body, only he controlled his future. And that's what I find so exciting about this uh, excerpt. Mm-hmm. I personally can uh, testify to the richness of this book and uh, uh, the fact that readers will get so much um, out of your, your critical analyses uh, uh, um contained in the book. But as an as a writer, as an author, after completing the book, was there or is there any aha moment, any revelation or discovery or or, or something that you learned? Um, I think that as much as I felt as though my experiences uh and experiences of race and of blackness and of dealing with these projections repeats across other people a lot of writing a book is you sitting at a computer by yourself, just typing words onto a screen. And it's a very lonely experience. Um, and I imagine my book having a conversation with other people, uh, in terms of readers. And the most satisfying thing for me has been with the book being out, uh, actually hearing from people who have their own stories, you know, that are along the same lines, right. You know, and feeling as though that the stories that I, that experiences that I felt were shared were indeed shared, you know, um, and that uh, was that was a relief, certainly, uh, you know, and also the fact that some of the stories and experiences that I recount, uh, people have embraced uh, to the extent where, you know, they can fight them like immediately, um, you know, almost like verbatim what I wrote. Uh, so for the first few months, it was odd because I felt as though like I own those words, you know what I mean? Like it, it, they were so personal. It's like, it's like one's own diary almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and to have other people, 
sort of talk about them and be inspired by them in some ways to relate to them, to share their own accounts of racial profiling, you know, that's been uh, certainly the most rewarding experience of having this book out now. Well, Harvey, we, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, I want to thank you for this, this provocative and interesting interview, but I do have one last question for you. I would like to know if you're working on any projects right now. Yes, yes, I am. Uh, I'm, I'm working on a couple edited projects you know, as a way of sort of cleansing the palate, I guess you can say. <laughs> you know? uh, so I'm editing uh, the, uh, the Cambridge Campaign at African American Theater uh, for, obviously, Cambridge University Press. Uh, and then I just edited a play anthology uh, consisting of plays that update um, and revise Raising the Sun. Uh, so it features plays by Robert O'Hara, uh, Bruce Norris, who just won a Pulitzer Prize, uh, Gloria Von Clooney, and there's one more player I'm drawing a blank. Uh, and I'm beginning to research a new book project that I'm tentatively calling Virtually Black. You know, so my first book was looking at various media uh, to explore the ways in which the censured black body that gets represented, you know, um, uh, offers a sense of their experiences, the experiences of blackness. This, this new book project is actually looking, you know, in a more distant way at the media itself, you know, and looking at how those photographs and postcards and films and paintings travel and how a person interacts not with black people or black bodies, you know, but how, you know, their understanding of race is structured through, um, you know, the presence of postcards, the presence of paintings, you know, the fact that a person can feel as though they had an encounter with a black person or they know black people through media. Uh, so that's really what uh, this next project is about. Nice. I'm looking forward to, uh, to reading all those projects. And I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. And take care. All right. Thank you very much. We've been listening to Harvey Young discuss what brought him to write his book, Embodying Black Experience, Stillness, Critical Memory, and the Black Body, published by the University of Michigan Press in 2010. Devarian Baldwin, the author of Chicago's New Negroes, says that Harvey Young's book links critical race theory, historical inquiry, and performance studies in a necessary, innovative, creative, and provocative way. If you haven't yet read the book, I urge you to do so. I'm sure you will agree.